Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. We're in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And this section we're in now, all the way to the end of chapter 6, is about our possessions, our money, our possessions, our clothes, our physical needs, our earthly treasures, those kinds of things. And my sermon title is not unique to me. In fact, a number of different people have used these basic terms to to define this passage, so this is not original to me. But the sermon is simply titled, uh, Two Visions, Two Treasures, Two Masters. Two visions, two treasures, and two masters. I'm going to read our text. It's going to include last Sunday's passage, but with more after it. This is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. You'll see that each little paragraph of this section fits under these headings. So verses 19 through 21 is the two treasures, 22 and 23, two visions, and 24, two masters. This is the word of the Lord. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Just given the nature of what we did last Sunday, I'm actually going to start with the middle paragraph about the eye, then I'm going to move back to the section we dealt with last Sunday, and then I plan to close with the last part. So first point will be two visions, and then again the second point is two treasures, and then finally two masters. I don't know about you, but this passage has always puzzled me. What exactly does it mean? Let me read it again. Verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? I'm sure you've, many of you have read that before, and maybe you've puzzled over that as well as I have. Let's just think about the metaphor that Jesus is using. It was more common amongst the Jewish people at the time than certainly it is common among us today, although we still have the phrase, the evil eye, and things like that in our culture, which I think goes back to this idea. But what Jesus is saying is this. Listen, the eye is the lamp of the body. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if you want to be able, if if your body wants to know where to go so you don't bump into something, so you know what's in front of you, so you can see your path ahead, You've got to have your eyes open, and your eyes need to be good and healthy, and light needs to be coming in your eyes. And if light comes in your eyes, guess what? Your whole body knows what to do. 
If light is coming in good and healthy eyes, your arms and legs know where to go, your body knows where to walk. Uh, You ever have the experience getting up in the middle of the night and you're walking through your bedroom and you've been through your bedroom like a thousand times and yet you still forget that there is a, uh, a, there is the cabinet over here, there's the dresser over here and you stub your toe or you step on, in our case it might be a toy that's found its way somewhere and you're like, ah, what was that? I had that happen to me not that long ago with I think a Lego or something in our living room in the middle of the night and walking out there and just stepping on something and didn't feel good. So, the eye is the lamp of the body. If our eyes are good and healthy, the light comes in our eyes and it illuminates for our whole body what is going on around us. Then Jesus says, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Why does he say, if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This is referring to someone who thinks that he or she has good vision. This is someone who thinks that they can see clearly, but they can't, and the light that they think they have turns out spiritually to be darkness. Now, if that's all we had, it's a little tricky to know what exactly that means. But the context, both in terms of how the Hebrew people use the term of a bad eye or a good eye, helps us. I'll talk about that. And also, the immediate context here, what this is wedged in between, really helps us understand, I think, what Jesus is saying. So, the simple way to say it is this. The person with a good or healthy eye is the person who sees spiritual reality for what it is, okay? Your word is a light unto my path, a lamp unto my feet. When I am seeing the world by the illumination of God's Holy Spirit, illuminating the text of Scripture so that I can truly perceive what Scripture means when it speaks about eternal realities and righteousness and unrighteousness, and God, and, he, and all those things, when I can truly see through the lens of Scripture, my eyes are good and healthy, and light pours into my body. It pours into my mind, into my heart, into my soul, and it shapes my whole life. It allows me spiritually not to run into the wall. It allows me spiritually not to fall off a cliff. It allows me spiritually to see the path in front of me, the, the straight and narrow path, and to stay on that path following God's truth and doing what God has called me to do. But there are people in the world, and we were all in this place at one point in our life. There are people in the world who think they see what really matters in life. Their eyes think they know what's really valuable, and they've, they've programmed their whole life because they've got this ultimate goal, these ultimate values, their deity, their God, what they're living for, what they think will fulfill them and give them meaning and identity and purpose and these things. They, they've got their eyes set on that object. It could be, you know the list, a job. It could be savings. It could be the stock market. It could be a relationship. It could be your children and how they turn out. It could be whatever, a vacation, traveling the world, this this thing of, if I could just have that, and our eyes are fixed on that thing, and if we think we can have that, and I'll be satisfied, we think that's offering light. It's giving us a sense of direction and purpose, but we don't realize is that our eye in that moment is bad. It's focused on the wrong object, and because our eye is focused on the wrong object, the light we think that's flooding into our body is actually no light at all. If the light in you is darkness. How great is that darkness? Imagine this. I uh, watched… So, I had, this, I had this little obsession over the years. I don't, I don't recommend it, but this is so embarrassing that I'm saying this out loud. I, uh, I get on these tangents at least once a year, my wife knows, where I go on YouTube. You're going to think I'm so strange. I go on YouTube and I, I watch airline disaster videos. You can think of me what you want after this, okay? 
And I, I've seen a lot of them at this point. I think I've seen most of the major, like, you know, like, like they'll do like a, whether it's National Geographic or the Discovery Channel, they'll do like a 45-minute reconfiguration of like some terrible airline disaster. You wonder why I don't fly. Sorry, Papa Fred. Papa Fred is a pilot. And uh, so, th- there, was, there was one story in particular. It was just, a, it was just a, an astonishing story. It ends terribly, I, of course. But the, the story where a, a, an airplane was flying uh, near the Amazon rainforest. And the pilot didn't realize because of a new coding system that had come through. He had not been properly trained. This was a failure. And he punched in the wrong code. And when his plane took off, it was just a few degrees in the wrong direction. He's flying over the Amazon. Endless Amazon. And hours go by. He's not noticing the sun is in the wrong direction in the cockpit. He should, he should know we're flying in the wrong direction in proximity to the sun. But he's not thinking, you know, they punched it in. And hours go by. And they, they should have reached the airport. They thought they've overflown it. They circle back around. They want to look more carefully. There's no airport to be found. They're in contact with a radio person. They think the radio person's in one city, but they've flown so far off map, they're actually talking to someone in another place. And the person's giving them faulty information. Before long, they find a river. They think this river will take us back to the place we need to go and we can get there. Their, their, their fuel is going down. It's going down. It's going down. They only have a limited amount of time. They follow this river, and the river takes them out into the middle of the Amazon rainforest. And suddenly, they're running out of fuel, and they're flying low, which burns more fuel because the air is thicker. And eventually, they've got to find a place to, to jettison this thing, and they end up flying and crashing somewhere. This is an awful story. Now, some people, I believe, did survive, believe it or not, from this crash. And it, they ended up getting back close enough to, to kind of sort of civilization that they were able to be somewhat rescued. But this story was kind of a harrowing thing to watch. Now, the pilots were flying, and they had a bad eye. And the whole time, they thought it was a good eye. Their object, they thought, was right in front of them. And they're flying, and they're feeling great. They think they're heading to the next airport, exactly on schedule. They don't realize the whole time that their eye is bad, and if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? It is possible to be sitting in the cockpit of your life, flying along, feeling great, watching the sun set out the window, feeling great, having no idea that the entire direction of one's life is heading towards the wrong object. And if we don't wake up to the reality in time and repent and turn around and head back towards Christ... We will crash in our sins, and we will die there. Jesus says, it is of all importance that your eye be healthy, that your eye spiritually be good, that you accurately perceive reality around you, because you might be having a great afternoon thinking things are going great in your life, not knowing that you're heading out into the Amazon forest. You might have no idea that you're way off track in your life, and Jesus says, you've got to have a good eye. You've got to have light for your whole body to know where you are going or what you are doing. Just real briefly, the, the, the eye is used in, the, in Proverbs. Listen to this. Proverbs 23. Listen to this. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. You ever heard this verse? Don't eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Uh, do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who inwardly is calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You've heard that maybe? Now listen, the literal translation is this. Do not eat the bread of a man whose eye is evil. That's the actual words in the original language. Don't eat the, st- the man who's stingy, who is set his eyes on the wrong object, on money, and therefore he's living for money, he's not generous, his eyes are locked in on money in a certain way, his eye is evil. That's the kind of idea that Jesus has in mind here. The eye has the wrong object, and in context, finances seem to be particularly in Jesus' mind. One commentator puts it like this, quote, a good eye points especially to this meaning. 
Singleness of purpose. The King James Bible says, if your eye be single, right, then your, your body is full of light. The single eye, an eye with one right final object, one goal. If you're, so, good eye means singleness of purpose or entirely, wholly, completely dedicated to God along with generosity of heart that accompanies that good eye. In this context, all of this is probably intended. When the light of God is shining into one's life, a generous spirit is the result, and one will lighten up the lives of everyone around. Now, hold your spot here. Turn to Luke chapter 12, to the right, Luke chapter 12. Instead of summarizing, I want to actually read this, this, uh, this encounter and parable. So Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. This would be an example of someone with an evil eye or with a greedy eye or a bad eye. Luke 12, verse 13. So Jesus is teaching. All of a sudden, someone blurts out from the crowd. Verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, just, just stop there. Jesus does not seem to like what this man is saying. There's a huge crowd, probably thousands of people. And this man blurts out to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. How is this a bad thing? It looks like his brother is trying to defraud him of part of his inheritance. A legitimate concern, right? I mean, you don't want someone just to defraud you of a large portion of inheritance. And so the brother is bothered by this, and you can understand that. So he talks to Jesus. He says, Jesus, you're, you're obviously a respected teacher, prophet. I don't know how much he knew of Jesus. And he says, tell my brother to give me my share of the inheritance, to divide it properly. What's the big deal about that request? Well, first of all, let's think about this for a second. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, is present doing ministry. And this guy gets one chance, probably, to talk to Jesus. What does he want to talk about? It's not his sin. It's not about how to be more like Christ. It's not how to follow God more closely. What's it about? The one, you get one chance to meet with Jesus face to face. What do you talk about? The inheritance money. I want my fair share. And Jesus sees the priorities of this man's heart are misaligned. A somewhat legitimate concern has been overly prioritized in this guy's life. He's made it too important. So Jesus tells him a parable. I'll, I'll just tell you this. I am glad that I never, if I, if I ever met Jesus, I'm, I just would never want him to tell a parable about me. That's when you know you're in trouble, okay? If Jesus says, let me tell a story, you better be, uh-oh, what did I do here? So this guy gets a parable thrown right at him, and uh, it is actually an act of love. Jesus is trying to wake him up to the danger that he's in with covetousness. Verse 16, and Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Do you hear this? 
This man has a bad eye. His eye is focused on his material goods. You know what he wants out of it? He doesn't dream, and this is convicting for all of us, I'm sure. He does not dream about how to use his great financial blessings to bless others. He dreams about what he can do selfishly to please himself. I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build larger ones. I've got so much grain and goods stored up for a long time, I can take it easy, kick back. I don't have to really serve or work or minister to anybody. I can just kick it back, kick back. I'm sure he had a flat screen TV and surround sound, this guy. And he kicks back. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. This is going to be a great time. And God calls him a fool and says, this very night, I'm taking you to be with me. You're entering eternity unexpectedly tonight. And the things you prepared, where are they going to go? And Jesus says, this man was, uh, was storing up treasure for himself, but was not rich towards God. Now, I want you to stay right here, skip down to verse 32, and I'm going to move to my second point. I know this is odd to do it this way, but I'm going to move to my second point, which is two treasures, which we discussed last week. So, we just talked about two visions, two eyes. Now, we're going to talk about two treasures, which is intimately connected to two visions. Look here at verse 32, the same chapter, Luke 12, 32. It's an amazing little paragraph. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He says, fear not, little flock. Listen to this. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So, you know what that means? The Father sees how frail we are, how weak we are. He calls us a little flock. Remember, sheep do things that are not intelligent, right? Remember this. They wander off. They get hurt. They get trapped. They get stuck. They do terrible things. They need a shepherd. Jesus says, I know that you're a flock of sheep. You're even a little flock, weak, struggling. But listen, Here's why you should not have any fear. It is your Father, your Father in heaven, the omnipresent, omnipotent God of the universe. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, which means the Father delights in rescuing His people and bringing them into His heavenly kingdom with eternal riches of knowing God for all of eternity. And if we are confident in God's good pleasure in us, His good pleasure to give us the kingdom, His delight to thrill us for all of eternity with eternal riches, that should free us up in the here and now to be a little more loose with our time in how we serve, our money in how we give. And Jesus says, sell your possessions, give to the needy, Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Don't let our minds be stuck on earth with a bad eye, focused on this world. Let our eye be good, focusing on heavenly realities and investing in eternal treasures. Turn, turn with me to your right to 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is a tremendous chapter on money and contentment. I want to read two parts of this chapter. First Timothy six, verse five. 
So Paul is speaking of people who create constant friction. This is 1 Timothy 6, 5. Constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. These are false teachers in the church. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That means financial gain. They're, they're in it for the money. These are kind of the health wealth guys. They're, they're in it for the money. But then Paul says this amazing thing. Look at 6.6. 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, let me just give you the reasons Paul gives under inspiration for why we should not crave wealth but should be um, content. And just listen to these. Just let these land on, on all of us. Number one, verse 7, we cannot take anything out of the world. I mentioned King Tut last week, remember? He had all those treasures in Egypt, but he took none of them with him. They were still there 3,000 years later when they were discovered in 1922, just over 100 years ago. We cannot take anything with us. So, it's right here. If you and I are ultimately living for something that we know for sure we will not have after death, we are living for the wrong thing. I mean, this is a bigger point than it may sound. Do you know how easy it is to live, to invest our heart and soul in something that we will not have when we die? Think about the focus of this world. The eyes and the vision are caught up with things that when we die, five minutes after we die, won't matter. Piper gave this illustration. He said, imagine, it's another plane wreck. That was not planned, by the way. Another plane accident. He said, this is a made-up one. He said, imagine this. Imagine you got a plane flying somewhere and it crashes, and on board the plane, Flying first class. You've got a very famous politician. You've got an extraordinarily wealthy billionaire and businessman. You've got a playboy with one of his playmates there in the, in the airplane. And then you've got a missionary kid, humble, coming home from a missions trip where he's, he and his family have invested years of their life. The plane crashes and everyone on board enters eternity and stands before God. Five minutes after death, they're all standing there. Now listen, the politician's clout will mean absolutely nothing on that day. The billionaire's money is no longer there. Remember the old saying, John D. Rockefeller, I think it was, he died, and someone asked his accountant or something, how much did he leave behind? And the accountant said, all of it. He left it all behind. The, the billionaire standing there before God, his money gone. He is stripped of his wealth and status and power. The politician's power and status is gone. The, the playboy's there. All the pleasures that he had invested in and lived for that were sinful and ungodly. He's just standing there with no more chance of that pleasure. It's gone. He's standing before God. And now you've got this seemingly pathetic missionary kid, impoverished, grew up in poverty on the other side of the world, third world country, invested his life, got sick a few different times with malaria and different diseases, barely made it through, was bitten by different kinds of insects and mosquitoes and had all kinds of different health issues, yet kept going back and investing and investing and investing the gospel, spreading the gospel with people who never heard it before. And in his short life, he got to see numerous people in a particular village come to know Christ. And now that young man or young woman is standing there before the Lord. Does that reframe how you view them five minutes earlier on the airplane? 
versus five minutes later before the Lord, what are we really living for? Are, is it the kind of stuff that five minutes after death will think, what was wrong with me? Why was I so preoccupied with that? It didn't really matter. I remember David Powelson, who passed away a few years ago from cancer, loved the Lord. David Powelson said, we spend so much of our life building ladders to nowhere. We, we just want to get to the higher rung on the ladder in whatever it is we're doing, right? We want to reach the next level of this or reach, be the best at this. And we, we're always comparing ourselves with other people at whatever it is we do. It's, it's just relentless. Our flesh is always saying, how am I doing compared to, right? And, and we, we want to be a little higher. As, as C.S. Lewis said, no one is proud because they're wealthy. They're proud because they are more wealthy than someone else. No one is proud for being physically attractive. You're proud because you're more attractive than someone else. You're not proud because you're educated. You're proud because you think you are more educated and more refined and more sophisticated than someone else. That's how we try to get our value in our flesh. That's an evil eye. That's the wrong treasure. And five minutes after death, what difference will those things really make? What will matter in that time when we're there is the famous saying, you know this, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Paul says we can't take anything with us. We brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of the world. That should affect how we view the world and how we view our things in the world. Number two, Paul says, verses eight and really six, he says we can find contentment with, with basic necessities and godliness. You see that in verse eight? But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. That's amazing. If we have basic physical necessities met, and who in this room doesn't far exceed the basic necessities, right? We're debating, you know, all kinds of things that cost way more money out here. Our basic necessities are well met for, for I'm sure, pretty much all of us in this room, uh, that, that's the case. And so, in that, Paul, Paul says, listen, with simple necessities being met, we can find contentment because, get, get this, we all know that the newest gadget and toy and trinket doesn't actually make us happy. There's a temporary thrill about getting something new, like a kid on Christmas. There's a temporary thrill and excitement about the newest whatever, car, gadget, t technological thing. There's a, there's a fresh excitement, and then guess what? That dies off, and you need something bigger to replace it, right? That's the way this works. And Paul says, chasing contentment through things is never going to bring you contentment. Earthly treasure can't satisfy what satisfies. It's amazing. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. It's godliness that actually brings satisfaction. That's amazing. I mean, do we believe that? Godliness, not wealth, not prosperity, not that those things are inherently wrong, but they can't satisfy. What only can satisfy is godliness, knowing God better, being in fellowship with Christ, walking with Him. That actually brings contentment, which is great gain. But if that's true, how high a priority should godliness be on our to-do list? I mean, that, that, what we seek after, what we are passionate about, if our eye is single, should be Christ. And the more we know Christ, the more content we will be, no matter whether we're struggling financially or we're doing quite well financially. Jesus will be our stability. And then look at verses 9 and 10 for earthly treasures. Look what Paul says about earthly treasures. 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires 
that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know what? That's First Timothy. The next letter he writes to Timothy, you know what he says? For Demas, one of Paul's fellow workers previously, for Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas is a walking illustration of the love of money in the world leading him to desert Paul in his hour of need and to stray away from Christ. It plunged him into ruin and destruction. Or to give a gruesome example, Acts 1.18, now Judas acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. A grotesque description of the death of a man who grotesquely gave his soul away to wealth and traded Jesus for money. Skip down to verse 17 here in 1 Timothy 6. This is a wonderful word to the rich. And by the way, that's pretty much all of us, isn't it? By worldly standards, I mean, come on. We are all in this room right now rich. I mean, we're in the top 1% of just human history in terms of wealth. I mean, kings a thousand years ago did not have air conditioning. They didn't have internet. We didn't have an iPhone or a smartphone in their pocket. We have wealth that goes beyond, that would boggle the mind of anyone living 150 years ago. It's all of us. So, so listen to, the, to, to what he says to the rich. First Timothy six seventeen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, proud, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life." We should not be arrogant or set our hope on riches, but we should be rich in good deeds, generous and eager to share. All right, let's go back to Matthew 6. As you're flipping there, I know some of you have read this book, Randy Alcorn's little tiny book, The Treasure Principle. I'm sure a number of you may have read this before, but I recommend this. I hadn't read this in a while. I went back and started it uh, I guess yesterday, and I was just struck. It's, it's about treasures in heaven, storing them up. But what, I, what struck me about this book, uh, Randy Alcorn, The Treasure Principle, is how full of joy it is. How full of joy it is. I watched a video last night on YouTube. I, I wasn't planning to watch the whole thing. It was like 26 minutes long, but I couldn't stop it. Uh, from Heart Cry Ministries, Paul Washer's uh, missions ministry, and it was a story of, a, they just posted it, I think, in the last week or so. And it's a missionary uh, on the other side of the world. And this guy has risked his health, gotten some serious health issues, and went back to this place. And here's what he did. This, this is the amazing part. He has, three, I think it was 300 little, uh, like, MP3 recorders that have a solar panel on the back so you can recharge them in the sun. And this particular group of people do not have a written language. So he's actually spent like eight years developing a written language so they can read the Bible as he translates it. It's amazing, okay? 
And he's gone back over there just recently, and he charged up like 300 of these things, and they put uh, all this teaching curriculum, including scripture and biblical teaching, on this thing, and they handed it out to all these people. And he said, these people are walking around the village in their, in their little homes and walking outside, and they're, they're playing the MP3 recorder with all the scriptural teaching coming to them, and they're hearing it in their own language. And this guy poured eight years of his life into it, got sick several times, had to go back home with his family, had to come back on his own and, and charge all this up. And there was all this money went into this time planning. This guy was exhausted, and he gave it out at the end of the video. I mean, you have tears in your eyes watching this thing. He's looking into the camera. He says, thank you so much to those who invested in this ministry. And it just, it was so convicting to me watching that last night. Can you imagine if some of your money or my money had gone into that particular program? To think that like I helped in a tiny way pay for some of those little MP3 recorders. And now there's people on the other side of the planet walking around in their little area of the world, listening to the good news of Jesus Imagine if, 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 if you gave some money to that or I gave some money to that in particular. And then imagine watching that video. How much joy would there be? How much of a thrill would there be to say, I, I had a little part in that. Like, that's amazing. The thought that I could have a little part in that. That's the joy of giving that, that Randy Alcorn focuses on in that book. It was deeply convicting to me. It's making me want to reevaluate some things even in my own life. All right, the last point, two masters. So we looked at two visions, two treasures, and now two masters Back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Let me reread 22 to 24. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let me just say, some translations have the word mammon. That's the literal word. You cannot serve God and mammon. Y'all have heard the word mammon before, perhaps? Mammon means more than just money, although money is a good translation. Mammon means basically money and all your material possessions. That's why the very next verse, which is next Sunday's passage, look at verse 25. Therefore, you see the connecting word? Therefore. I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? You see, that's all mammon. Your clothing is mammon. Your money is mammon. Your food and drink is mammon. Jesus says, listen, you can trust God for your mammon. Don't live for it. Live for God and trust God to provide. Live for God and trust God to provide. We're in Matthew. Let's go to Matthew 19. Matthew chapter 19. Here is an example, a sad example, the rich young man who clearly wanted to serve both God and money, but when push came to shove, he had to choose, and he chose not Jesus, but his, his wealth. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 20, we'll jump in in the middle of the story. Matthew 19, verse 20, the young man said to Jesus, all these I have kept, the commandments, what do I still lack? Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for because he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Now, I'm going to move toward a conclusion here. Jesus looks at this guy. He's a young, zealous, successful, morally upright, rich man. And this guy looks like, you want this guy on your team. This guy looks great, superficially. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Commandments. I've kept all those. Jesus zeroes in, I think, on the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus zeroes in and goes, okay, if you would be perfect... Here's the one thing you got to do. Sell your great wealth, and when you sell it, take the proceeds and give it to those in need. You're going to have tons of treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. In other words, do you see what he's saying? Replace money with me, right? Take the money out and, and put me in. Take the money out of the center of your life and put Jesus in the center of your life. Give your money away and put Jesus in place of it. That's a great deal, because if he does it, he gets treasure in heaven forever, and he gets eternal salvation and a relationship with Christ. That's an amazing deal. But this man, his heart was gripped on his wealth, and he could not serve both God and money. So when Jesus pushed him to make a choice, which will it be, the man went away sorrowful because his heart loved his money. It was his identity. It was who he was. If he left if he lost his money, who would he be? He's the rich man. If he gives all away his wealth, he's no longer the rich man. He loses his very name, his definition. He loses his power. He loses his prestige. When he walks into a room, people no longer look at him and go, oh, this is this guy. Look at this guy. No, no, he's no longer in that status. He said, I cannot give up all my status to have Jesus. And so then Jesus says, with great difficulty will the rich enter the kingdom. Disciples. What? Then who can be saved? And Jesus says, it's impossible, but not with God. In other words, to, put, to have Jesus replace our idol is impossible left to ourselves. You cannot snap your fingers and change your heart, but God can. By His grace, for His glory, when we look to Christ's sacrifice, He who was rich became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich in Christ, spiritually and eternally rich. When we see that and it melts our heart and we're moved by it and it shifts around the values of our heart, before long, the other idols that we used to have, the earthly treasures begin to move out of the way and Jesus starts to take preeminence and he begins to become central. With man, that's an impossible thing, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. Let's take a moment. We're gonna bow our heads together. I wanna give you just a moment of silence to talk to the Lord about anything that may be uh, in particular on your mind, and then I will pray for us and we'll sing. Lord, for some of us, it may not be wealth at all. That is our temptation. But Lord, all of us in this room, 
will struggle and do struggle with earthly treasure being prioritized over heavenly treasure. All of us struggle with double vision, wanting to have our eye focused on you, but also wanting to love the things of this world. And there's a battle that goes on in our flesh that we fight and fight by your grace. And Lord, we struggle at times about who our master is. There are moments where we slip and fall, and the world is our master. The lust of the eyes, pride in possessions, the lust of the flesh, the things of this world that are fading away can get the priority, can get the, the upper hand. And Lord, we, we repent, even right now, God, I pray even as we sing right in just a moment, that you would lead us to repent of loving creation over creator, of loving the earth over heaven, of treasuring earthly things over heavenly things, and of setting our eyes and our gaze on earthly things that are temporary rather than on what is eternal, which is knowing you, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, only because of Christ's substitutionary death and resurrection in our place for our sin. God, help us to see the sheer joy of having our eyes fixed single on you. Show us the joy of treasures in heaven and giving up at times, sharing generously treasures on earth God, show us the utter joy of having you as our master day in and day out. And show us the misery of an eye fixed on the world. Show us the destruction of the plane heading out into no man's land, unaware of the bad eye fixed on the things that are fleeting. And God, I pray that you would fill us with a dread of that and a thrill and a joy at following you and investing in eternal things. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.